On September 8, 1965, in Delano, California, 800 Filipino workers struck 10 growers of table grapes. They were members of the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, a branch of the AFL-CIO. The workers demanded increased wages, a 15-cent increase in the hourly rate up to 140 an hour, and an increase in the piece rate from 10 cents to 25 per box. Eight days later, the National Farm Workers Association, mostly Mexican-Americans, joined the Filipinos, and eventually the two groups merged to join to form the United Farm Workers, whose grape strike and boycott became legendary. The farm workers' strike captured the world's imagination in the late 60s, early 70s. As people learned of the terrible working conditions in the fields, they found ways to support the struggle. One of these took place in individual households. For years, my husband and I didn't eat grapes at all, nor did any of our friends. The struggle gave us two American heroes, both Mexican-Americans from the Southwest. Cesar Chavez was born in Yuma, Arizona. His family had owned a small parcel of land there, but they'd lost it. They'd been cheated out of it during the Great Depression. This dispossession forced them to move to California and become migrant workers. Dolores Huerta, now 91, is a native New Mexican. She was born in Dawson in the northeast corner of the state. Her parents were both active in the community. Her mother was a small businesswoman and agitator, while her father was a coal miner, field worker, union activist, and state legislator. The 1965 grape strike marked a new chapter in what had been a long-established tradition of Chicano organizing. As we celebrate Labor Day here in the Southwest, it's good to recall some of the efforts from this part of the country, especially since Hispanic Heritage Month starts in a little over a week. A notable New Mexico example is the 1950 Empire Zinc Mining Strike, which took place outside Silver City. The film Salt of the Earth memorializes it, and if you haven't seen that film, I highly recommend it. Among other things, it is the only film ever banned in the United States. A Beacon Press book tells the story of how this happened, it took place during the blacklisting era of the 1950s. You won't be surprised to hear that. In California, many people had attempted over many years to organize farm workers, but the United Farm Workers' struggle was the first truly successful one. The UFW's success held for about 15 years, and farm workers began to earn respect and a decent living. Now, sadly, things started to fall apart after 15 years, but I don't think that negates the historic achievement 
of Chavez and Huerta and their colleagues. Their early success still holds lessons for the rest of us. Marshall Gans writes about these lessons in his book, Why David Sometimes Wins, referring to the biblical story of David and Goliath. Gantz spent 16 years with the farm workers as a community and labor organizer, and now he teaches at the Kennedy School of Government in Massachusetts. Gantz describes several different factors behind the UFW's success. One is that Cesar Chavez was able to achieve two things that might seem self-contradictory at first. First, he was able to ground the farm worker movement in Mexican-American religious and cultural traditions, but at the same time, he could embrace diversity, welcoming many ethnic groups into the struggle, many religious perspectives. So ethnically, union membership included not only Mexican-Americans, but also the original Filipino strikers and also immigrants from Yemen. The first UFW funeral, in fact, was a Muslim one for a Yemeni worker. Religiously as well, the UFW was diverse. Key players included the son of a rabbi, two Protestant ministers, a whole lot of U.S. Catholic bishops, and the agnostic colleague of Saul Alinsky, Fred Ross Sr., who became um, Chavez's mentor. And the movement's spiritual underpinnings were as inclusive as its membership. It embraced not only Catholic social teachings, but also Alinsky's approach to community organizing and Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolent action. A second strength of the farm workers was that their movement was highly relational. That is, human connection was primary. Organizers used face-to-face -face meetings, both one-on-one -on -one and in groups, to help people get to know each other as whole people. They got people talking to one another by inviting them to start by sharing their stories. And then, when times got difficult, a deep heart connection was already there, and this was able to sustain the work. A third movement strength is what Gans called strategic capacity. An important part of strategic capacity is a culture of learning. Thus, when inevitable mistakes were made or when tried and true tactics stopped working, the organization took the time to reflect on what had gone wrong and brainstormed new tactics. In other words, the union was nimble, creative, and adaptable. When workers didn't have the money for a traditional strike fund, they built a support network instead. When regular business meetings didn't draw much interest, they were turned into festive Friday night gatherings, solidarity celebrations, which combined theater, song, special guests, along with analyses of the week's events. Finally, the Farm Workers Union captured the public imagination because it had a powerful new story, 
rather than cast the strike only in terms of a labor dispute, it offered a narrative of ethnic oppression and solidarity. And thus it drew in thousands of people who might not have been interested in the strike alone. Across the United States, the civil rights movement had prepared people to grasp other oppressions, including a long history of anti-Mexican, anti-Chicano oppression. And people did pick up on that story. As I've said, a deep Catholic spirituality lay at the heart of the farm worker movement. And of course, in this, it was like other great social movements driven by people of faith. It is hard to imagine the civil rights movement without the black church, and it's hard to imagine the farm workers movement without Catholic spirituality. And as Unitarian Universalists, we've made our own contribution to social reform and social justice. Shining examples are the 19th century movements for universal public education and women's suffrage. And in our time, we can be proud of our leadership in the campaign for marriage equality. It's worth noting that the Unitarian and Universalist record is somewhat mixed regarding the rights of workers. Nevertheless, we do have some significant connections. And one of these comes through the source of this morning's reading, UU theologian James Luther Adams, sometimes known as Jim Adams or JLA. Jim Adams' long life spanned most of the 20th century, from 1901 to 1994. And he was a passionate teacher and a consummate extrovert. And he loved housing students, hosting students at his home. And as a result, three generations of ministry students, I among them, felt his influence, counting him as a mentor and a friend. And although his name sounds very New England and he lived in Cambridge for a long time, JLA wasn't a descendant of the presidential Adams family. An upper-class Bostonian once asked him what branch of the Adams family he came from, and his reply was, eh, I come from the poor white trash branch. Jim Adams grew up about as far from Boston as you can get in Ritzville, Washington, in a dry, dusty corner of that state. He was the son of an impoverished itinerant preacher, and as a young person, he distributed his father's fundamentalist tracts door to door. But then he got a job working for the Northern Pacific Railroad. This was one of many jobs he had. And on the railroad, he discovered the University of Minnesota far from home, and he decided to enroll. This led him to Harvard Divinity School eventually, and then to the University of Chicago. And he became both a Unitarian minister and an academic. As a young minister, several powerful experiences shaped Jim Adams for the rest of his life. During his first ministry in Salem, Massachusetts, 
there was a labor strike at one of the textile mills. Members of his congregation included people on all sides of it. This was the town church. So mill workers, managers, and owners were all sitting in the pews. The local press was silent about the workers' reasons of strike for striking, and so Adams took it upon himself to investigate. The 26-year-old minister's findings led to prophetic sermons and news articles, a call for a public airing of the workers' grievances, and these brought results. He went to Germany sometime later, and his experiences there during the rise of Hitler only reinforced his growing religious orientation. He'd gone to Germany on sabbatical and was horrified by what he saw. And what struck him especially was the complacency of the German liberal churches. This was in sharp contrast to the Christians he met in the anti-fascist underground. When he returned to the States, he resolved that he would transform liberal religion. He would move it away from vague platitudes and toward active engagement. And he spent the rest of his life exhorting people to resist evil and build the beloved community. This morning's reading comes from an essay in which he sets out five smooth stones of liberalism. On Labor Day weekend, the fourth smooth stone seems especially relevant. In Adam's words, freedom, justice, and love require a body as well as a spirit. We deny the immaculate conception of virtue and affirm the necessity of social incarnation. In other words, Love and justice don't exist solely within hearts and minds. They have no meaning unless we bring them down to earth, make them real in the world. Labor Day celebrates one form of what Jim Adams called the power of organization and the organization of power. It arose after the watershed Pullman Railroad strike of 1894, initiated by President Grover Cleveland as a conciliatory measure toward unions after the strike was crushed. It was intended, in other words, to honor not only labor and workers, but organized workers. And labor unions, as we know, are hardly perfect. They're no more perfect than churches are. But at their best, best they're deeply incarnational. They embody love and justice and bring them down to earth. Much that we now take for granted would never have happened without labor unions. Workers had to organize for such basics as the minimum wage, the eight-hour workday, paid sick leave and vacation, workplace safety, and an end to child labor. So if you enjoy any of these things, thank the labor movement. On this Labor Day weekend, may we renew our commitment to seeking justice and love for all people, including ourselves. And may we keep in mind the good news. We don't have to do this alone. To meet the daunting challenges of our time, 
we can and must combine our strength with others. Many stones can make an arch. Many drops can turn a mill. Or in the words of Denise Levertov, we have only begun to know the power that is within us if we would join our solitudes in the communion of struggle. So may it be.